Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, I'm Matthew Wolfe and you're listening to my podcast. This podcast is the best bit from my weekly radio show on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from three till four. What you're listening to is taken from live radio, but this is a podcast, which means it is obviously not live. So please do not try and get in contact with any of the live details you may hear me mention throughout the show, as your messages will not be received, but you may still be charged. All of our terms and conditions for getting involved can be found on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Also, as this is a podcast, some of the information we give about news stories may have been updated or changed since our broadcast went live. The information in this podcast is accurate and correct as of the time the radio show was originally broadcast, but might not now be accurate. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss the live radio show every Sunday from three till four, where you can get in touch live. Hello and welcome to the first episode of my podcast. We had two great topics on the show today. First of all, we spoke to a teacher, an English teacher in North London, about what she thinks the government needs to do to make schools safer. This was recorded before the government announced to close schools. And I think you'll find it quite interesting to look back and hear our views before the decision was announced. Later in the show, we talked about a perhaps more controversial topic, the idea of if renewable energy can actually be harmful for the environment. If you don't really understand, listen on to the end of the podcast. Hope you enjoy. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to Wizard Radio. I'm Matthew Wolf, and for the next hour, and at this time every single Sunday, I'll be discussing your opinions on the biggest current affairs and political stories of the week gone by. As always, we've got two topics to debate this hour. Firstly, with the return of schools already delayed and in further doubt due to rampaging cases of coronavirus, I want to know from you if the 11th of January is too soon for them to reopen. Should the government be doing more to ensure the safety of teachers and students' families? And later in the show, with proposed wind turbine power stations set to damage seabird habitats in the North Sea, to what extent do you support renewable energy that can damage animal habitats? As always, get in touch with the show throughout the hour. Contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply on 07807 183 538. 
email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our details are on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk We discussed whether the teaching unions were justified in their outrage at the government's plan to roll out a coronavirus testing programme in schools at incredibly short notice. The government have responded by delaying pupils' return to school. Exam year students in the UK will now return on the 11th of January and all other years on the 18th of January. Both of these dates are a week later than previously arranged. Most primary schools other than those in the highest areas of risk, such as London, will return on the 4th of January. This all comes about as new cases of coronavirus and hospitalisations are at an all-time high. As well as giving teachers and educational staff time to roll out testing programmes, this delay is also in part transmission rapid among many asymptomatic people spending long periods of time indoors together. Here is Dr Zabeda Hack, a member of the Independent SAGE panel, telling Good Morning Britain why she thinks the government should have done more to ensure the safety of schools. I'll start with you, because should children be going back to school? You, you've, got the, you've got the inside track, really, on, on what's going on with COVID. Is it the right thing? I don't think it's a question about should they be going to school, should schools be open or shut. I think the key question is, are schools safe enough right now? Can schools make, can, can the government make schools safer? And, and in, in making it safer, can we then keep schools open? Right now, we have a crisis situation. Yesterday, we had the highest number of daily COVID cases, over 41,000 cases of coronavirus in this country. And yesterday, and by Christmas Day, we had more patients in hospital with COVID than at the peak in April this year. So we are in a crisis situation right now. Government has delayed opening Parliament because we're in a crisis situation. And yet yesterday we heard Michael Gove saying, no, it's fine. We're going to have schools open next week and we'll have a staggered return. And frankly, that's not acceptable and that's not safe. Not until we make schools safe. So how, how, how can we make return. schools safe then? What, what could be done? Some easy measures. Well, since, since, since June, Independent Sage have been saying we need to have smaller classrooms. We need to have children spreading out much more across many more different classes as opposed to 30 children in one classroom. Social distancing is impossible in that way. We need better ventilation. We need face masks for secondary school children in classrooms. We need more laptops for children so that they can do remote learning. We are absolutely clear that education is essential for children. Children need to be at school, but they don't, they shouldn't be at unsafe schools. And that's where this government have wholly failed. They haven't made schools safe. They talk about mass testing and that not that alone isn't going to make schools safe. Dr Hack there listed a variety of extra precautions schools could take in addition to the new testing programme. 
such as the requirement of face coverings, added ventilation in classrooms and smaller class sizes. But speaking out of my own personal experience, my school has had at least some of these measures in place since September, yet there have be, still been outbreaks among year groups, albeit far less than in other schools I know about. So I want to hear your personal experiences of the precautions in place at your school, as well as suggestions of other things schools can do to minimise the risk as much as possible. The vital importance of schools and the education system almost goes without saying, but I want to know if you feel that what the government is planning minimises the risk to an acceptable level or not. Get in touch. You can contact us, tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter or at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply on 07807 183538. Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. And all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. And a slightly more niche topic for our second uh, topic of discussion later in the show. But it was in the news this week that, bird, that the bird charity RSPB expressed their concern about the damage to wild seabird populations that new wind power stations off the North Sea will cause. The charity supports the growth of renewable energy to combat the effects of climate change, but it said it's fearful of the impact on birds round the coasts as turbines increase in, in an effort to fulfil the Prime Minister Boris Johnson's promise of powering every home by wind energy. Duncan Clark from Developers Orsted told BBC News that climate change remains a very serious threat to our, envi our environment and habitat, and there is an ever-pressing need to act. Hornsey 3, which is the name of the power station, could provide clean power to over 2 million UK homes and offset over 128.2 million tonnes of carbon dioxide over its lifetime. However, the RSPB says computer mod modelling suggests that the huge turbines, which stretch over 200 metres, will cause the death of 73 kittiwaks a year, an already endangered species of bird. A delicate balance is needed because there's not, this is not the only situation where animals are harmed through renewable energy. Hydroelectric dams in Brazil are resulting in the destruction of habitats in the Amazon. I want to hear your ideas about how we can keep developing renewable energy whilst minimising the risk to endangered animals. Contact us. For the last time before our first break, on Instagram and Twitter, we're at WizRadio. Text us on the number 07807183538 with no extra cost supplying, only standard network rates. Email us, station, at wizardradio.co.uk. All of, and all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. So as I said, we're going to get um, the first song of the hour on now. And after that, I'll be talking to a teacher from a North London secondary school to hear her first-hand experiences of what it's been like in school with COVID-19. So stay tuned for that after the song. But right now, it's The Juice World and The Kid Leroy Reminds Me of You. Welcome back to Wizard Radio. Playing then was Juice World and The Kid Leroy Reminds Me of You. And before the break, I introduced our first topic, the question of if schools should return on January the 11th. And I told you that we're going to be speaking to an English teacher from North London. And Rebecca joins me on the line now. How are you? 
So I think we may be experiencing some Hello, technical Matthew. difficulties. We're going to go to a message and maybe you can rejoin on the line and hopefully the sound will be a bit better afterwards. So I'm just going to read out the first message we've got from one of our listeners. Um, and this one's coming from in from Aaron. And Aaron's got in touch to say on the topic of if schools should return on January the 11th. This might be harsh of me, but I didn't think the government, but didn't the government announce mass testing would be needed at schools on the 15th of December? When we're in a pandemic, giving schools roughly one month's notice from 15th of December to January the 11th to implement mass testing doesn't feel like short notice to me. Everybody has needed to adapt quickly to last minute rules and notices that the government have put into place based on data that they're seeing happening in real time. Schools aren't helping themselves. They're finding it difficult to implement mass testing, but then they also aren't adapting quickly enough to online learning. Schools are a hotbed for coronavirus spreading. I don't understand why they aren't acting fast enough. So this text from Aaron there, um, criticising schools actually, saying that they themselves should have done more to prepare for what's going on to try and make sure they themselves are safe. Um, we spoke about this idea on the show last week, the idea that whether, is this issue schools fault or is it the government fault for not giving schools a clear enough plan um, as to how to prepare for this. So I'm going to ask you, um, Rebecca, I think you're back on the line. Um, um, yes, I am. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you feel as a teacher, you were given the right resources to make schools safer when kids are returning. Well, I don't want to be rude to anyone, but I think that's frankly a bit of a teachers and uh, librarians and um, people who, who we have a particular job within a school environment to do, which incidentally has also become um, psychologists and carers in the main because it's just been such a tricky return. And the news that we would be implementing math testing and the onus would fall on teachers to do this or on staff was literally dropped on the last day of term. Now, I don't want to be cynical about this, but I do feel it has left schools in a very difficult position in order to try to implement um, all of the mechanics necessary to, to have a good testing regime for students and staff. So I, I do feel your pain, Erin. I know that everybody wants things to get back to normal and, and to be in school is clearly the best place for, for, for children during the, the, the week and during the term. You need that structure. However, um, I think that if mass testing is to work, we need help. We really need large... Well, we heard most of your answer well, we there, Rebecca, but um, it there. sounded like it was the line was just faltering like at the end. But um, I think we got quite a lot of the message. We're going to go to our second song of the hour on now. And um, during the break, I want to have as many of you getting in touch as possible to respond to what um, Rebecca said just then about um, what it's been like for teachers trying to respond to the vague government advice. Do you agree with Aaron or do you agree with Rebecca in her um, reaction to the text we just had? Um, so the song that we're going to get on now is CJ Whoopsie. <laughs> Welcome back to Wizard Radio, playing then with CJ Whoopty. So before the break, um, we tried to play an interview with um, Rebecca, who's an English teacher in a secondary school in North London. And we had some technical difficulties, but it seems like that's all sorted now. So let's say, Rebecca, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Matthew. Cool. So um, I think we should start right at the top of my questions. Um, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you, um, 
what was the purely educational impact that you noticed on your students um, when returning from the long break? And was it worse for the younger students or the exam students who maybe had um, more at stake uh, with time off? It's quite a tough one, Matthew. I was thinking about this question. And initially, to be quite honest, everyone seemed so happy to be back and to be within a structured environment with teachers, with lessons, with timetables, that we just wanted to get on with it. And we came to a decision, pastorally, within our school anyway, that it would take time to understand the impact on a variety of students. Obviously, some people snapped straight back into uh, being at school and they did brilliantly at home with all the online learning and they were raring to go. Others we had noticed had done virtually nothing while they'd been in lockdown or they certainly hadn't turned in any assignments. So we obviously needed to get to the bottom of the reason why. We did quite a lot of phoning around during lockdown, but still it's difficult to understand what on earth is going on in people's lives during this crazy time we've all been having. So we made a decision that we wouldn't be sort of testing students, if you like, on anything we taught during lockdown. We would just move on slowly and then we would um, do a series of tasks where we would be sort of diagnosing, going back little by little across all subject areas to find out where the gaps were. And we were quite clear that as a school we wanted to have this approach that we didn't make people feel anxious about having to, to catch up. So your question about exam students as opposed to younger students, again it's, it's tricky, it wasn't really across the board one way or another. I think for some of the younger ones who are starting exam subjects now, so going from in you know the UK year nine into year 10, that was the hardest actually, because they missed the end of their sort of um, lower school um, schooling, the graduation that we throw for them before they move into exam lessons. So they come back after all this time off and suddenly they're expected to just pick up GCSE style learning and pressure. So I think because I have a pastoral role, the year 10s or year 11s look at me with fear in their eyes, wondering if I'm going to be sending them home. Because literally every week we've been having to send a few people home if one person tests positive, And that's been the worst impact, really. So you're talking there about the fact that there have been quite a lot of cases um, in your school. So I want to ask you more specifically, um, what precautions did your school put in place when you first returned? And have they changed or evolved um, since you first returned with um, updated information about the virus and updated science or even updated advice from the government? Yes, Matthew, we, we have had quite a few th changes to take on board. And again, it's, it's hard to work out whether they have been working, but the virus has got the better of us, like it seems to be getting the better of everyone at the moment, or whether they weren't sufficient. I don't think we'll be able to know the answer to that question until we look back in many months or even years to come. So practical changes. Um, Obviously, we've been having um, hand sanitizer and wipes in every classroom. Each teacher is responsible for wiping down the equipment um, before and after they use it. We've had one-way systems. Masks in corridors have been um, compulsory, even though legally it was left up to the, the schools to decide. Some students have been wearing masks in lessons, but that's completely up to them. Um, we've been trying to ensure that the students do not come within two metres of any of the teachers yet the students are in their own year group bubbles so we're kind of assuming that they will unfortunately be passing it amongst themselves but we need to try to maintain a distance between them and, and, and the teachers. So there have been a lot of practical um, decisions. I think people have managed wonderfully really, people just embrace the changes because they just want it to feel like normal. 
So um, with all that in mind and all the precautions that your your schools really tried really tried really hard to um, make as effective as possible. Um, do you now feel safe um, returning to school on the 11th of January with cases a lot higher than they were in September? Um, and has this new testing programme that the government announced reassured you at all? Unfortunately, I don't feel safe. I don't think it's anything to do with what the school has or has not done. I think it's the fact that this virus, if we're to uh, listen to the, the statistics daily, is rapidly increasing particularly in the area where, where I live. And that is something that we can't fight against just by pursuing measures that were put into place before it had accelerated. You know, the figures suggest that it's getting to the point that it was initially at the point of national lockdown. So I do worry that political uh, necessity, if you like, from the people making decisions has decided that this is the time that we must go back and there is no going backwards to national lockdown because it would look bad. But I, I just regret the sense that we always seem to be playing catch up here in England. We never seem to be making decisions that are listening to the people with the information and and uh, being cautious as a result. I mean, you know, if, if Parliament is being delayed going back, I, I feel like we're really teachers, students, anybody going into a school, we're obviously all mixing together and then going back home. And given that online learning has accelerated so quickly, I mean, I know it's patchy, but from my personal experience, our school was pretty backwards in terms of embracing new technology. We didn't really need to in the past, but we've learned fast and we are putting provision out there. And I just wish that um, we could listen carefully to the advice, really. So finally, um, what practical steps do you think the government and schools should take to ensure that um, education can continue, but that no more people are put in unnecessary danger. Um, what practical steps should should the government be taking moving forward um, to get us out of this mess? I think the move towards uh, full-scale testing is a great one, but I wonder if there isn't a way that it can be allied with um, a vaccine rollout. I was talking to a friend yesterday who is a midwife and she's very much involved with the vaccination programme and they're accepting their student nurses back on their programme but only if they're vaccinated. So she's managed to get vaccinations happening as they go and if we're testing all these students but it's also the, the test which isn't even that um, accurate I understand, why on earth can we not roll out a vaccine at the same time and surely that's more um, we, we can sort of trust that better than just a, a test which may or may not be accurate. So unfortunately, at the moment, if if um, the virus continues to replicate so fast, I personally would prefer, I guess, the, uh, the, um, the, the factors surrounding a national lockdown and online teaching, and then we pick up the pieces emotionally, academically, when the numbers go down. I think that really only seem, seems to be the only way out at this point. Rebecca, thank you so much. I'm sure um, our listeners will have found that very insightful and um, hopefully they can get in touch to say what they thought of what you said. So um, thank you for coming on. Um, it, it was very insightful, thank you. Okay, so um, while you were speaking, we got another message in um, on this issue of if schools should return on January, on January the 11th. And this text coming in is quite sympathetic to what Rebecca was saying. It's, it's from Joseph and Joseph says, 
Schools are stuck between a rock and a hard place, Matthew. Think about it. The best thing for us students is to physically be in school, learning in class with teachers, because that's the best way to learn without a doubt. But that way increases the spread of this very contagious virus and mass testing is not going to be effective because it won't stop the majority of the spread. And then at, ho and then at home learning isn't as effective. You can't really control what students do and what they don't do. And not every household has enough computers for everyone in it. Some houses just have one computer for four people. I don't even know what to suggest here because there is no perfect option. Well, Joseph, I'd just like to say that I think this text really expresses the exasperation um, that a lot of people feel that there is no perfect solution, that um, any option people take will have damaging effect, a, a damaging effect. But I think that um, resulting from that situation, there's really two schools of thought. There are the people that will come down and say, well, the government have put us in this situation where there's a rock and a hard place for schools to go and um, they've got no real viable option that is a, a successful way to move forward. And it's the government's fault for not being clear, for not acting quickly enough, for all of these, uh, for all of this variety of reasons. But other people would say that the very fact that this is such a confusing, exasperating situation means that it really shouldn't be the government that take the blame at all. The government have inherited this um, ridiculously difficult situation and they're just trying to do their best for students and whatever they do they'll get hammered for it um i'm not saying to any of you listening um which which way is is right and which way is wrong because if i'm being honest i don't know i think it's very very confusing but i can understand um both why someone would be um furious at the government's response and their inaction just like rebecca was but i can also understand why someone would support the government's actions and um view what they're doing as um simply trying to um, get the education system back up running because we do know that um, it goes without saying, like I said in my introduction, that the education system is so vital, um, not just to children, but to parents as well who have childcare taken care of five days a week. So for all these um, different groups in society, education's vital. And um, the government have really put um, a, flag in the a flag in the sand, if that's a phrase, to say, this is something we're not budging on. We're going to do everything we can to make sure schools go back. We had the the second lockdown that lasted two weeks or so um, that ended on the 2nd of December. And during that, schools remained open. And the government was saying schools are the one thing that we will not budge on. We will try and keep open for as long as possible. But now it seems that with the cases at a record high, as high as they were at the start of the first lockdown, that they're really having to, they're being forced to reconsider that perspective. And um, it's gonna be very interesting, if not scary, to see what follows um, from this difficult situation. But thanks for getting in touch, Joseph. And I think you really convey um, the attitude that a lot of people have um, towards the situation we're now in. So thanks for getting in touch there, Joseph. I'm gonna move on now to a text from Juliet. And Juliet says, I think going back to school is a really stupid idea. The government has said that there are more people in hospital right now with COVID-19 than there were at the first peak of the virus. And when we were at that first peak, apparently the situation was so bad that we were in a full nationwide lockdown and all schools were closed. Yet now the situation is worse with an even more contagious virus and yet schools are reopening. I do not feel safe about going back to school next week 
that feels like a disaster waiting to happen. I would rather I would rather cases went down, more people were vaccinated, and I could learn from home in the meantime. Well, just to pick up on the start of your the, what you're saying at the start of your message there, Juliet, the idea that compared the comparison you're making basically to uh, the first lockdown and where cases were, and um, I made that comparison when responding to Joseph's text just a few seconds ago, and actually thinking about it, what I think is different is the fact that we've already, it's, it might, may even sound simplistic to say it, but what's different is that we have already had that lockdown, so kids have already missed um, a vast amount of school. Regardless of the cases, the government have almost seen now the impact that the first lockdown had on kids' education. And we heard from um, Rebecca that for her school, it wasn't too bad, the educational impacts. It was maybe the social impact that was perhaps worse. But for lots of other schools, the impact was severe in many, many aspects. And um, perhaps the government has seen that and said, we're going to do everything we can to avoid that repeating itself, even if cases are that high. And whether that's a wise decision or not, I have to say, I don't think it is. Um, I think that lives should be prioritised above everything, especially especially when um, we've got a vaccine on the horizon. And I, I think it was la on last week's show that um, I repeated something I read on Twitter from a comedian who said that um, people breaking restrictions and dying now from COVID-19 with a vaccine on the horizon reminds when people died a few hours away from a truce in World War One and World War Two, the idea that you're so close, that we're so close and that um, it almost seems unnecessary. And I think if a vaccine wasn't on the horizon, the question would be very different because we couldn't go into endless cycles of opening and locking down. And that just wouldn't be sustainable on businesses, on people's lives. And there would be a point where people would have to say. A risk maybe need may need we may need to take a higher level of risk. But the fact that a vaccine is already here and in development does change the situation and um, evolve it into. It changes the situation in the fact that um, a lockdown does not seem like the absolute worst case scenario right now, as there is some light at the end um, of the tunnel. But yeah, thanks for getting in touch there, um, Juliet. I think that was a really interesting um, take, the idea that um, the ideas that you put forward that um, the first lockdown, that the actions of the first lockdown really impact um, what's going on right now. So thanks for getting in touch there, Julia. Um, but I'm going to move on now to a text here from Lauren. And Lauren says, the thing I have never understood about how the government have handled schools during coronavirus is that they have pretended as if only students who are a low risk group are affected if they catch the virus at school. They haven't thought about teachers, support staff, or even our parents and family members that we live with who also get the virus if we catch it at school and then go home. My parents are 60 years old. If I catch the virus at school and bring it home, then they could get seriously ill from catching it from me. What are we meant to do, though? They're not thinking straight. Well, Lauren, that's a really interesting point and one that we've seen so much um, throughout this debate. The idea that we know for an absolute fact that the risk for secondary school aged students of dying themselves from the virus is astronomically low. It's very, very, very low. But as you said, most secondary school kids, nearly all of them, live with an adult and the risk of adults dying are very is, is very, very high, a lot higher. We know obviously that um, there's a correlation between the older you are and the higher your risk. And um, 
for a lot of people in childcare arrangements where their grandparents look after them, but for people whose um, parents are older, um, the risk is higher. And I feel like the government really needed to acknowledge that further. And uh, some would argue that there's nothing they can really do. Kids need to go back to school. And um, they did understand the government that there would be some level of risk attached to schools returning. And um, it's very, very hard to, um, unless you create a board, turn every single school into a boarding school, which is obviously impossible. Um, it's impossible to get mitigate and get rid of that risk. So the government are in a difficult position. But I think something you pick up on is that the government have in parts even refused to acknowledge the idea that it does increase the risk. And maybe they're doing that to try and reassure people and convince people that they should go to school because they need schools full. Or maybe they're just thinking, then they're not really listening to the science. Maybe they're ignoring the advice and saying, oh, it will be fine. Kids are low risk and not really thinking it through. I'm not sure which one it is, but I think those two sides of the coin um, are both possible and um, kind of explain their attitude and the, uh, their attitude with regards to the risk um, the education system provides, not just to students, but to the people they live with. So, yeah, um, thanks for getting in touch there, Lauren. And um, we've got another text here from Danny. And Danny, uh, you're going to be the last text on this topic for um, our last song of the hour. And um, you've got in touch to say that if schools have known since December the 15th about mass testing and they still haven't had enough help to implement it and people still aren't convinced that it will actually work, then I don't think it will make a difference. A common example I've heard from my friends is someone who has coronavirus but is asymptomatic, so goes to school thinking they don't have it, taking the rapid test, testing positive and then being sent home. Okay, cool. But what about everyone they were on the bus with? What about everyone who's in the queue with them waiting to get tested? This just will not work. Well, Danny, I understand your pessimism here, but I'm going to have to disagree with you because whilst I can't argue that these tests will not be 100% effective, they won't be. We know they're not. The people that make them are saying they're not going to be 100% effective. But if they're somewhere about 60% effective and they miss, let's say, 40% um, of positive tests, that's still a large proportion of people that are positive that will test positive and go home and that thus will be taken out of the education environment. And quite rightly, um, you bring up a lot of people who someone will be in contact with. But all these measures in place um, to try and halt the spread, the idea that people are going to be wearing masks on bus, there'll be social distancing wherever possible in queues to get tests. All of these things mean that while obviously there is still a risk, the risk will be as low as possible. And the fact that testing will be happening for every um, regularly will mean that if that person has in fact passed it on to a few people, those people will hopefully be identified and the spread will be stopped. So no one's saying that um, this mass testing in schools will be 100% effective, no one. But hopefully it will go some way to reducing the spread um, to at least some extent. And I think that's a real, this, this topic hasn't really been very positive. So I think that's um, quite a positive way to um, end this segment um, with at least some hope that um, what's being introduced is helpful. Um, however much of a difference you think it will make, it will make some, it will make some difference. And I think we should hold on to that and um, take that forward. So thanks for getting in touch on this topic. 
We're going to get our third song of the hour on now. It's Taylor Swift, Willow. And after that, I'm going to be asking you to what extent do you support renewable energy that can damage animal habitat? So get in touch on that question. But right now, as I said, it's Taylor Swift, Willow. Welcome back to Wizard Radio. Playing then was Taylor Swift with Willow. So I asked you at the start of the show, to what extent do you support renewable energy that can damage animal habitats? And I'm asking this question um, in the wake that this week, um, Boris Johnson has announced that he's pressing ahead with plans to build a massive, massive wind power station in the North Sea. Um, He says that it will offset 128.2 million tonnes of carbon dioxide uh, during its lifetime. But um, many uh, charities that represent, if you can represent animals, um, some endangered seabirds have questioned this decision, saying that already endangered birds are likely to suffer because of this. And um, I want to know what you think. Um, we know, of course, that renewable energy is a, gr- is a good thing. It's beneficial to use it burning fossil fuels and um, it doesn't contribute to global warming. But uh, to what extent do you support it when it's damaging the habitats of endangered animals? So straight away, I've got a text in here from Tyler. And Tyler says, this is the sort of selfish, nonsensical plan that the government loves to implement. The whole point of preventing climate change and switching to renewable energy is that it is meant to make the planet a healthier place for everyone, humans, animals, etc. The idea of prioritising a form of renewable energy that actively damages animals and actually makes the planet more dangerous a more dangerous place for them, it kind of makes it a pointless effort. It's like reducing homelessness by just killing homeless people. Yes, it gets down, but you've killed people. Well, Tyler, that's quite an extreme example you've given there. And I'd have to say you've got very strong views on this. And I can understand where you're coming from. The idea that the whole point of um, preventing climate change is to save animals, save humans. And in killing animals, it kind of undoes the work that you're trying to that you're trying to do. But I would say that climate change is going to have a lot worse and a lot bigger effects than just um, reducing the number of some birds. Yes, it will destroy the number of many, many, many endangered species. Um, we did a special on this show when we talked about the UN report on mass extinction and the vast numbers of animals that are going extinct at a record rate right now because of human activity. And um, climate change is just accelerating that, but it also results in um, forced immigration of millions and millions of people as areas of the world uh, become unlivable. It will cause so many other impacts. And I think it's just worth reiterating that, that the benefits that can come from preventing or not prevent slowing down climate change as much as possible will be great um, and perhaps bigger than the damage to certain populations of seabirds. However, um, the government know that it's not a good thing, it's not a sustainable thing to be decreasing the um, population of these endangered uh, birds. So they've said that to compensate for the estimated 77 um, uh, Kisiwoks a year that will die because of these power stations, they're building specialised um, nesting nesting habitats on cliffs uh, on the shore. And they say that this will, as I said, compensate for the numbers of birds that are being uh, killed by this um, 
new development. But um, the charities responded by saying that there's no way of knowing these nesting areas on, on cliffs will actually be effective until the power station will already be complete. So um, they could have already done this and it will be too late for these endangered animals. So that's obviously the perspective of the charities, the people that are fighting on behalf of these birds. And um, they're, as you can see, obviously concerned. But um, we're, we're speaking very in depth about this one type of this one situation and this one species. But uh, it's not just wind stations in the North Sea. I, I, I brought up the example of um, hydroelectric dams in the Amazon uh, it, just a few minutes ago. And uh, there's, there's other examples of how renewable energy, which is still better, so much better for the environment than um, fossil, uh, fossil fuel powered power stations. But it does basically examples where um, the impact of these renewable energy stations um, can be very, very severe to endangered animals. And it's, it's not isolated to one case. So I think that's just worth reiterating before we move on to the next message, which is from Josh. And Josh says, as we learn in geography, every decision has a cost and a benefit, and we need to weigh it up. The risk of birds dying due to wind turbines isn't new, and, is it, and it's relatively new. London School of Economics predicts somewhere between 9,000 and 106,000 birds could die every year from wind turbines, compared to 55 million birds that are killed by domestic cats in the UK every year. Now compare that to the real benefits of wind turbines, which is that we get to contribute to saving the planet because we're no longer using fossil fuels, which is the most harmful thing we can do, and will end up in not just birds dying, but in all of us dying. I do support the action. Well, it's great to have this text in from you, Josh, because it completely contrasts with Tyler's text that we just had a second ago and really sets up the two the two camps of debate on this issue. And um, I can completely see where you're coming from, Josh, the idea that you have to weigh up the costs and the benefits. But one thing that I think is really interesting is you compare the number of birds killed by domestic cats and um, the number of birds that will be killed by these turbines. And I think one distinction to make is that the birds that are killed by domestic cats are often um, common birds that um, are in absolute no danger of going extinct, that um, have very high populations in urban areas and um, are in no danger of going extinct, like I said. And um, stations often more specialised birds that um, live out to sea and are more endangered. But I think it's an interesting question of, is it our point, of, is, are we in a place to weigh up one animal's life to another. If you're talking about the value of simply the number of animals' lives, well, there's hundreds of millions of animals killed every year for the meat and dairy industry. Um, so if we're really weighing up um, numbers of animals protected, can we really do that without being hypocritical? Um, should we instead be looking at how endangered an animal is? But is an animal more valuable just because there's less of them? Uh, it's an interesting idea, all of this. And it's, it's kind of interesting how we value an animal. But I think what's more important is that we should try and protect ecosystems and animals that rely on each other. And um, we know, as I said, with the UN report on mass extinction, that millions of animals are dying right now because of human activity. And in many of those cases, it's only one animal that needs to um, be endangered for many, many other animals to suffer due to the intricate um, web or food web within ecosystems and 
we know that it's a real pressing concern uh, for many ecologists that um, certain animals are very important to whole ecosystems. So I think maybe that's a way of evaluating the importance of an animal. But I feel like it's very difficult and you get into some murky waters when you get to that stage. But yeah, thanks for getting in touch there, Tyler. Um, not No, sorry, not Tyler. Thanks for getting in touch there, Josh. Um, I appreciate that message. And um, I'm going to move on to another message here from Penny. And Penny, uh, this message is going to be the last one of the show. So thank you to everyone for getting in touch, both on the first topic about um, the education system and um, the messages we've had just now on our second topic. So thank you everyone for getting in touch. Um, but straight into this message here from Penny, who says, I think renewable energy needs to be treated the same as net carbon zero projects are treated. So when you do something negative, you need to balance it out with something positive. So in a net carbon zero project, you measure how much carbon the project will emit, and then you plant trees or do some other action which will result in that amount of carbon on issue. So if the government does a renewable energy project which threatens a species in one way, they need to do something to offset that. They can increase funding in breeding, help to relocate them or something like that. It should be weighed up and balanced out. Well, the government have tried to do that with these specific nesting sites on the shore. But I do think that the idea of net carbon zero can be quite problematic. And I'll tell you why. We know that many of the habitats that are destroyed with um, certain human activity are unique. And they're unique because they take thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to build up. We know that if you cut down a hundred kilometers of the Amazon, you could then plant a hundred kilometers worth of trees, even if there's a wide variety of trees, but it will not make up for the unique life that has flourished in the Amazon and that you've taken away because humans can plant trees, humans can rebreed animals and it has the ability to reduce carbon or whatever. But what makes these environments so unique is that they've been allowed to evolve and they've been able to um, they've been able to evolve. They've been um, able to intertwine with each other. All these different organisms to have an interalliance. Every species is an interalliance on each other in a really, really complicated and specific way, which humans can't just reproduce, uh, recreate. And there's a reason it's taken hundreds of millions of years to um, to have to occur naturally because it's very, very complicated, very, very intricate. And it's almost arrogant, I think. From people to think they can just re recreate that but that said that said i know i've just gone on a big rant about why it's not a good thing if you are going to have to release carbon and destroy natural habitats which let's face it human populations are expanding at a massive rate that will need to be the case then putting something back is the least you can do to offset the damage and i do support that so i hope that kind of answers your the questions you posed there penny and um yeah i appreciate you for getting in touch and raising that issue because it's a, a really interesting text so thank you there um thank you to everyone for listening for this hour um i'll be back in the same time same place next week if you've missed any of my show it'll be available for the next seven days on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk forward slash repeat up next is madeline molly but first it's time for the news and the weather <laughs> 